This is a HeadGum Podcast. Craig, besides you, do you know what else I am at least six feet away from at all times right now? Your computer. Yeah, well, my website specifically. (laughs) (laughs) And if you want to make a responsible, socially distant website, there's no better place to do it than Squarespace. Squarespace is a website that helps you make websites, uh, helps you showcase your work, blog or publish content, sell products and services of all kinds, promote your physical or online business, mostly online these days, I bet, Mm -hmm. and so much more. They do this by giving you beautiful templates created by world-class designers. Uh, Everything is optimized for mobile right out of the box. You get free and secure hosting, built-in search engine optimization. That's SEO for those of you in the biz. And uh, analytics that help you grow in real time. There's also nothing to patch or upgrade, and you get 24-7 award-winning customer support. So if that sounds good to you, you should go to squarespace.com slash overdue for a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use the offer code overdue to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash overdue, 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Overdue, it's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. <laughs> Does the schwa work on your name? Because I get a, I can do it. Craig. Craig. Andrew. And it's pretty good. It's not it's bad. It's at least as good as it is on your name. That's true. I, w- I think they're about equal. We are a podcast that is equal. <laughs> what? Where we <laughs> cover books and uh, each week one of us reads it, uh, not in real time, but before we start recording, and then tells the other person about it. Um, we have not read that book before, and then we talk about it. We talk about the author and all that stuff. This week, Andrew read what? I read The Shadow of the Wind by Carlos Ruiz Zafón. Ah, yes. La Sombra del Viento in its original Spanish. Yeah, that's, yes. Uh, it was recommended to us, I think, by a number of listeners over the years, but most uh, importantly, two of our Patreon supporters, Aubrey and Rebecca, recommended it to us. Uh, Rebecca said, this is a well-paced, fun read about a secret library in Spain in the aftermath of the Spanish Civil War, and it has a lot of suspense and great plot twists. This is my top pick for best beach read ever. It's just so, so fun. When I was going back and finding that note, I did not expect the turn towards beach read, and that actually maybe, as I was prepping for the show, like helped set expectations, because the expectations are high for this one. Sure, yeah, because it's, it's like people on our social feeds were... We're very excited for us to read this one. It was a New York Times bestseller, right? Oh, yeah. It, there were two sequels published. Or three like sequels. A prequel three sequel. sequels oh, published. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I got the Shadow of the Wind, uh, the Prisoner of Heaven, and the Angels game. What's the other one? Uh, the Labyrinth of Spirits. Um, and then, Ooh, yeah, and then there was a prequel short story written uh, called The Rose of Fire, which I think is free. You just, like, Google it and go read it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, uh, the other thing, so we talk about authors on this show a lot, but I just did just want to dip real quick into the translator because this was originally written in Mm -hmm. Spanish, Mm -hmm. like you said, um, it was translated into English and the sequels all were as well, I believe, 
uh, by Lucia Graves, yeah. who, fun fact, is the daughter of uh, Robert Graves, who is the author of I, Claudius, and was a huh. kind of a big-time translator in his own right. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so he's a guy you might have run into, and she's done all of these, and I think she... I think she did a good job. I think th- there's a um, there's something in this that sort of reminds me of other uh, like Spanish language authors that we've read for the show. Yes, there's like a quality of that that comes through in the translation uh, that I'm sure is is lifted from the original as well. But yeah, she grew up in May on Mallorca, which I always forget is an island, um, and lived in Barcelona in Spain for a long time before moving to London. So she is like, I think she all she speaks multiple languages and this is one she's very at home with um so mr zafon um uh he was born in 1964 in barcelona uh he did go to school for information science um but then got into like advertising and publicity and then he started writing novels in the 90s he wrote a series of ya novels that were very successful um, even though I think I've read some interviews with him where he recognizes that like 90s young adult books were not necessarily the same. They didn't carry the same mass market weight in the post Harry Potter phenomenon world, I think. Okay. Because um, uh, <laughs> there was some joking interviews where they were like, well, do you need to put a wizard or a vampire in it? And he's like, I hope not. Um, <laughs> maybe but now. I'm trying to think of what book wouldn't be better. Sort of. I'm not even better, just like spiced up a bit. Oh, sure. If you put a vampire in it. <laughs> I mean, that's the whole thing with like Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, right? Yeah, no, just, I suppose you're yeah. right. Someone else did think of this already. Simpsons did it. Um, Simpsons. <laughs> so uh, he won uh, the Adebe Prize for his novel, The Prince of Mist, in 1993, which then a lot gave him the money to move to L.A., which he spent a lot of time living in, in L.A., uh, he did some screenwriting, wrote some more novels, and then in 2001, his career really took off with this book, The Shadow of the Wind. Um, it sold, I don't know, depending on whatever interview you're reading, anywhere from 15 to 30 million copies in a bajillion languages. Um, the quote from his website uh, that they pulled was from, I think, the French magazine Lear that said, The Shadow of the Wind epidemic began in Spain and has already spread to Germany. There's a simple Boy, question. <laughs> We can edit that out now that I'm reading it out loud. Well, just can we? Like, I'm really hoping that one of the side effects of this whole situation that we're in right now is that we start to sort of rethink the language around internet virality mm, and, and the sure. way that like art spreads and to make it sound less like a disease. I yes. also have issues with it being described in like in the the language of war, but well, you know, that's one thing fair. At a time. That's yeah. true. Um, anyway, it was very popular book. <laughs> maybe, I, maybe I will stop using quotes like that, but it is a popular book. Um, and it we was so popular that people who were reading it had to stay six feet away from each other oh, and, and wear masks. Oh, jeez. Um, mm-hmm. And it is probably the most successful Spanish book by raw numbers, um, you know, written by an author from Spain. Um, it's won numerous awards, and as we said, it's been followed by uh, like three official like sequels that form a quartet um, that fall under the like cemetery of what is it called, Andrew? The cemetery of forgotten books, um, cemetery of lost books. I think the cemetery of lost books. Cemetery of lost I books. Lost the exact cemetery of forgotten books. Okay. You're right. Okay. The first time. Yeah. Um, and. 
there's a lot been written that you can like go into any one of these novels in any order. He, I was watching an interview with him where he said like, when I started Shadow of the Wind, I thought maybe it could be 3,000 pages <laughs> and all of these ideas would be in there. And I realized that that was terrible. So I didn't do that. Uh, but each of the stories like reflects this a couple of characters, but then branches out. Um, and he expects you to be able to like go into any one of them in any order and get something out of it. Though I think people agree that the last book is like very clearly the last book. So you're, you're going to get different stuff out of that, you know, as a, as it like tying up the knots. So if he, if he does subsequent ones, it'll have to happen before that one or I, he, is, I, the, is that intended as a wrap up by I him? I think it's intended as a wrap up of the whole okay. venture. Uh, I was wondering if it's supposed to be like a sort of Fast and Furious vibe <laughs> where you kind of need to rearrange. If you want to watch it, read them in chronological order, it's a whole separate thing. Oh, man. Which which one is the Tokyo Drift? Anybody who's read all of these books, please write in <laughs> over to pod at com. Tell us which one is the Tokyo Drift the, of this the series. Super, the super, super big cross-section of people who've read all the Cemetery of Forgotten Books books and... <laughs> our way into the Fast and the Furious movies. Um, I do think we could probably get to the book soon because Zafone's whole career is really defined by this series. But for me, like the one thing to mention is that like it was, it had a, uh, like a slow initial growth that was like born out of like the magazine in Spain that like liked it and started talking about it. And then like, it kind of other places picked it up and it did spread by word of word of mouth and people reading reviews. There was no like, we're going to turn this into a TV series and then that's going to spur a bunch of sales because actually he's been very adamant that this is never going to be adapted into any other media. Um, even though he be... is a media omnivore, like he read comic sure. books as a kid, he loves Dickens, he loves movies and he's very upfront about the fact that this is like a mashing of genres and he just loves storytelling, but he thinks this needs to be a book and will never change that purportedly. Yeah, I'm not I'm not going to say it would be impossible to adapt this because I think you could do it in like a sort of 10 episode HBO sort of thing. A mini, yeah, it, the prestige miniseries of the late 2010s <laughs> that has taken <laughs> right. off as a form. Yes. Um, I mean, it's it's been around for a while, but we're not going to get all oh, a point of television about it. Um, but yeah, it's it's very much a book that is about being a book. Yeah, like the way the way that it, the story that it tells, I think, could be adapted to pretty much anything. The specific way that it is nested in on itself, and the sort of affection that the book and the characters in it have for books and publishing. <laughs> It all make I, I think that's probably what he's thinking about when he says this needs to be a book it's, it's just the um the story and the form reflect the the format and vice versa i think yeah he says what i don't want is to spend years in, of my life remaking in other media something that for me is already in its definitive version uh he works hard so his readers can picture his books shot by shot the way he designed them quote because that is part of the experience i want to transmit he also in that interview this is with um fa i think efe.com 
uh, talks about like people getting excited about adaptations of books because they just want to go out and reconsume the story. And he's like, I'm not here to do that. That's not what I'm trying to create. I'm off to do my other sure. thing. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's maybe uh, an overly like pat view of what a, an adaptation can be and why people go yes, to true. I think like, that's, yeah, consume that's fair, them. That's but I, under, I understand where he is coming from. Sure. Um, I have some other stuff about like why the book has generated such a strong response, but I think it's best addressed in context of you giving us what the story is. So let maybe we take okay. a break and come back. Yeah, let's take a break. I'm parched. Great. Are you actually parched or are you just saying that as a thing? I was just saying that that's like the pretext for taking a break, like the universe. <laughs> in- <laughs> The in fiction, we have to keep. Reason we have to keep K Fabe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tell me about a good box of stuff that you've gotten recently. Just any box, any old box. box. How about the any good box of stuff? How about the box that I received from the folks at Cause Box? It's a That's good subscription box curated by women for women that's filled with amazing products and brands that are ethical, sustainable, and have a positive mission to give back and make the world better. I got it last week, uh, and it has like half a dozen products in it, stuff from like skincare to jewelry to homewares. Laura really enjoyed the earrings that came in the box. Um, I know there's How, like... Who is... Uh, what's Laura's relation to you? Oh, she's my wife. Okay, there you go. My wife... <laughs> Uh, and there's a reusable bento box and a tumbler and there's a cool portfolio and um, like a duffel bag and some reusable grocery bags. Um, it's like $250 worth of stuff for if you were buying it, 50 bucks. Um, and there's like a magazine inside that tells you like where the items came from, like who made them. Uh, what it, there's like a guide to like making sure you know when to keep your reusable bags with you and like. That is a thing that I am very bad at, so I'm actually going to be referring to that um, when you know the world opens back up and I go to an office again. Um, it does come in the mail with free shipping, and it's like getting yourself uh, or someone in your life a box of surprises, Andrew. Don't you love a box of surprises? If they're good surprises, sure. Yeah, and these good surprises, uh, of course, come at an exclusive discount to our listeners who can go to causebox.com slash overdue and use the code overdue to get their first box for 30% off. Uh, that's You can get your first box worth of over $250 for less than $39. Go check out Causebox right now. Who doesn't love surprises? Where do you want to start? I guess we can talk about the like the setting first, and then we can maybe sure or just the historical context. So this book is taking place um, after both. It's taking place in Spain, in like Barcelona specifically, um, and it is after World War II. Um, it is after the Spanish Civil War, which happened a little bit before World War II, nineteen thirty six to nineteen thirty nine. Yep, um, but. It, it is in a Barcelona that is still very much like recovering from those traumatic events. Yes. For folks who need like a quick primer, here are the notes that I took on the Spanish Civil War. Second Spanish Republic versus the Nationalist Revolt led by Francisco Franco, who would later become the dictator of Spain. And then I put in all caps, lots of lenses. It would be irresponsible to oversummarize this conflict. 
Um, <laughs> then the nationalists won, and Frank and the Franco government was recognized by the UK and France in '39, which caused like hundreds of thousands of people to flee his repressive regime. Uh, and Barcelona fell uh, in '39 as well, like before they were recognized. So when this book is written, the nationalists are in power under Franco. They've been in power for several years, and a lot of bad stuff happened throughout that regime, which is part of something called the it's like the Pact of Forgetting. Um, it's like yeah, the Pact of Forgetting is this like thing in Spanish politics. Uh, where up through and after his death in 1970, in the 70s, um, whether or not you go in and like prosecute the bad stuff that happened and whether or not like you should do that as your country transitions to democracy. Um, so the idea that this book is about like remembering stories, I think is in concert with some of those ideas. But anything else about the setting? Yeah, and that's like, it's thematically um, interesting in in the book because there are, People are talking about like the chaos of of the war and how that fe- this feeds into like the interpersonal chaos that the book is mostly concerned with. Okay. And somebody says the line like no nothing feeds forgetfulness better than war. Hmm. Both both in terms of like people wanting to forget what they've seen and in terms of governments wanting to control whatever the official narrative is after the fact yes 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 that makes sense yeah and there's a lot on this as a book about barcelona um and about it not being the tourist version of barcelona but about the like the real experience he he has said in a couple of interviews like you can't look at your hometown like as a tourist you see the actual experience you don't just see the like shiny travel book part um and I think that was part of his goal with with these books and and this book in particular. Um, and it's kind of been it's taken the place of like you think of Dickens' London, you think of Hugo's Paris, you think of you know folks like Fitzgerald or George Eliot or whoever was writing about New York City. Like this has become one of the books that people think of when they think of Barcelona, if not the sure. book. Sure. Um, so what's happening? against this backdrop of 1940s Barcelona, Andrew. We open with uh, this boy, Daniel Sempere, who is the son of a like a bookshop owner who is going into this other book shop called the Cemetery of Forgotten Books. It's just this giant like labyrinthine library. We talked to which book were we talking about when we were just talking about um, libraries that you can get lost in in weird little bookshelves. I think it was the Pratchett book. It might right? it might have been the Pratchett book. There I was think it was the Pratchett book. There was another one recently where we were like traveling around through different books, and I don't remember which one that was. The, the Pratchett one was about like you could actually literally tr- get lost and stumble into another dimension in one of these little cluttered okay. used bookstores. And I think that the Cemetery of Forgotten Books. Gives me a similar vibe. Um, uh, the book I was thinking of was the Air Affair, also that Jasper Ford. Like, yeah, 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 and and that th- this book, Shadow of the Wind, made me think of the Thursday Next stuff because it is similarly, it is it is a book about like loving books. Yes, yes, and it's self conscious about it a little bit. Um, but so Daniel is taken into this cemetery of forgotten books by his father, and. Like the, the, the deal is everybody like goes into this bookshop and they pick one work and it's, and 
the book that you were like guided to becomes very important in your life and you're not supposed to like give it up or, or take it for granted or anything. So he finds, uh, Daniel finds this book called the shadow of the wind. Okay. Yeah. By this guy named Julian or Julian Carax. Carax. Great. I'm just going to do my best at a pronunciation because yeah. it's, that's the kind of vibe <laughs> that it is in the world right now. Okay. Julian Carax, shadow of the wind. Uh, so Daniel devours this book, and I think like anybody who reads a book by an author they've never heard of that they end up really digging is like, hey, maybe I can find some more books by this guy. And as he starts exploring, he realizes, no, I can't find any other books by this guy, and most people don't even seem to have like heard of him. Huh. And so his like through his dad, he meets this sort of book collector guy. Like if, if you've ever known anybody to like hunt down rare editions of of books either to collect or then to resell like first editions and other rare copies of things that's the kind of vibe that this guy gives off i'm trying to think if i do know anyone like that and i don't know went to college with somebody who did like we aren't close with them but Mm, okay dave oh yes dave's name yes 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 yes. I'm, i'm thinking of the like i do have a first it's like maybe a first printing or a really early printing of a Eugene O'Neill play that I really am glad I have, but it's not like an amazing condition. It's just neat to have it. I don't have that collector bug because I'm just like, I'm just trying to live my life, you know? Spoken like somebody who's never bought an Amiibo. (laughs) Fair enough, I suppose. Amiibos are Pringles, man. You just pop one and then you keep popping them. That's the slogan. That's exactly the slogan. So he goes, you know, he he finally finds this person who has even heard of, of Julian Carax and he, you know, this, this bookseller guy offers to buy this, this book off of Daniel and Daniel, like knowing the sort of rules that his dad told him about the cemetery forgotten books and loving this book. Like he does says like, no, of course not. I'm not going to sell this to you. And, um, that inspires a respect for Daniel, young Daniel, out of this bookseller guy. And um, Daniel then becomes like a friend of the family. Like in, in particular, there is a um, a young woman like Daniel is, I want to say like 10, 11, 12. Like he is he is an old tween, but he's still <laughs> like a tween. I love the phrase old tween. He's an old tween. I'm trying to think of like. There is this phase of your life where you're not like a young kid anymore, but n- neither are you like a teenager with all the stuff. In that. my experience as an educator, old tweens end up either being my favorite or least favorite students because they are kids Ooh. at their weirdest. <laughs> it depends on how look at me they are, like how <laughs> funny they want you to think they yes, are. Yes, boys who think they are funny but they are not funny are the pits. Boys who don't think they are funny but are hilarious are amazing. Which were you because I was the former for a while. I hope <laughs> and I might still be. I hope I was the latter. I really don't know. The only thing I I think you got to be honest with yourself, my dude. I don't know. I I, I was mm. friends with a lot of boys who were definitely the former. So I think I was maybe the latter just by like virtue of not needing to fill that social niche. Okay, okay, um, okay. If anybody is listening who knew me when I was 10 and would like to disagree, please <laughs> let me. <laughs> 
So he. So wait, whose family is he becoming in, ingratiated with? Um, it's this. Uh, uh, Barcelo is the is the the, the surname. guy the bookseller's Don, name Don Gustavo Barcelo is okay. the b- bookseller and he's like he's a good enough guy he's kind of affected like he's got affectations in the ways that maybe some collectors and and rich like connoisseurs of media can be but he's an essentially nice guy and uh, Daniel is very smitten with his uh, niece I think Clara and and she also is really into this Carax guy and you know, she is because she is blind. Like she can only read with borrowed eyes, which I thought was a turn of phrase was, which was neat. Interesting. Uh, but like Daniel is smitten with her and he comes over and he reads her books and hangs out with her and has like a very intense crush on her that is never going to be like requited. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> because of the age difference. Oh, she's older than him. Um, okay. But this, yeah, so so this relationship gets us through, like, Daniel's teenage years until he's, like, 16, 17, which is how old he is when most of the action of, of the book okay. takes place. And he has this, like, traumatic experience where he goes over to see her and she is, like, in bed with somebody else. And this sort of, you know, this is this is his first experience with heartbreak. And so this the, this puts you in the mind of Daniel. Like, he's a teenager He's like smart and uh, and um, like clever enough, but he is also very much a teen. Sure, he's got a broken heart, like only a teenager can have. Yeah, I do. A lot of the reviews of this like check the box that this is a quality buildings roman. Like it is a coming of age story alongside all of the other stuff it's doing. So if that's a, a thing that you're interested in, that might be a good hook. Yeah. So um. So Daniel kind of lets the the Julian Carax Jesus thing <laughs> lie for for a little while because he's growing up and he's doing teen things and he's you know he's working in his dad's bookshelf bookshop and and just kind of like living his life. But there is this guy who like smells like a burnt, just like burning. Yes, yes. What is who, his name? Um, I've read, so I read this book in 2009, maybe it was like one of the, f- I got, I got through like a dozen novels, my first college, my first year out of college. Um, and this was one of them, which I knew nothing about. And I've forgotten most of it, except apparently this dude who smelled like smoke. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, the name of, is it Fumero? Is that no? That's a that's the name of the evil inspector oh. who who is kind of the arch nemesis of everybody. Um, it's it's the name of a character from one of from Shadow of the Wind. Oh, um, okay. It's, it's a name like a pseudonym for the devil. Oh, I'm trying to find Lane Coubert. Lane Coubert, and he's a he's got sort of a disfigured face, and he smells like burning, and he tells. Daniel, like I know, I've heard through the grapevine that you have a book by this guy, Julian Carax, and I want it. <laughs> oh, okay. And so it is, it is come to Daniel through like these, you know, contacts that he and his dad have in the book biz that there is some, somebody, some strange person who makes it their business to go around buying up all the books by Julian Carax and burning them so they oh. don't exist anymore but we don't and know why is, 
We don't know. We don't know why this book. You you'd pitched it to me, I think, as sort of a magical realism kind of thing. I think I was misremembering. So yeah, yeah. I came into it looking for that, and there are some elements of that in here, a little tiny bit, just in some of the descriptions, like especially des- the description of the cemetery of forgotten books, and in the way that characters who fall in love pretty routinely do it the first time they see each oh, other great. And yes. cannot and their minds cannot be changed like one way or the other through any of the events <laughs> that happen in the book or any other people that gave me a magical realism vibe but no it's it's very much like a mystery yes slash whodunit book it's noir-y in, in is yeah, what i've read yeah, yeah. sure 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 um so yeah so there's this guy trying to burn all these books and they were not very they didn't sell very well in the first place. Like every, everybody who has read them just devours them and loves them. But for whatever reason, they just sold hundreds of copies and that's it. Hmm. Okay. Like, and they were originally written in French and then translated into Spanish even. Well, not, not even translated like the original author wrote them in both languages cause he spoke both. But, um, but yeah, then in in any language, they were kind of stinkos at the uh, <laughs> at, at the on the old bestsellers. I was list. gonna say at the box office, but that's not <laughs> the book. The book's office. Um, can I ask a question without derailing you? I don't recall. Does eh, I don't know if there's any rails. We're kind of off road yeah. a little bit. <laughs> Does the book? I push that button on my Jeep that says four by four, and now we're just off road. <laughs> Does Zephon give us parts of the actual Carex novel? Do you read any parts? No. Uh, okay, you do not. It is not that. No. Type I mean, of book. like you, you get tiny little snips through Daniel. Okay, when he's when he is reading it for the first time, but it's not a thing where chapter seven like, is from the book. Yeah, or right. Okay, like, okay. like it's none of that. There's there's none of like you, you could easily have this be one of those things where every chapter begins with a oh sure. Like a snippet of some in fiction, like media, which I think was a Thursday next. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, convention, but no, no, it's it's all like the vast majority of it is through Daniel, and then the there's like a fifth of it, maybe toward the back that is from the perspective of another character, like it is a journal or something that she has written to Daniel like clearing up many of the mysteries. <laughs> okay. And that's well we can talk about Yeah, we'll get to that. how I felt about how I felt about kind of the back half or so of the, of this book, but um So this guy's been buying up the books. We don't know why. They're stinkos. What's uh what's Daniel going to do about it? Um so Daniel just like threw events <laughs> there. so i'm trying to th- i'm i know the events i'm just trying to think how to describe them to you sure so the, sure the night that he walks in on clara and her lover um her lover like beats him up pretty bad oh wow and and he as he is kind of stumbling home from this runs into this homeless dude named fermin romero de torres mm. um who makes an impression on Daniel and Daniel convinces his dad to kind of take him on at the, at the bookstore and they become 
pretty close friends. I didn't really get a good idea of how old this guy is supposed to be and how <laughs> chill it is that he and his 17-year-old are super good buds, but it works. It's my understanding that, enjoy it. that his deal is that he was part of the losing side of the Civil War and was, uh, I think in one of the other books, we get his like backstory and his like escape from imprisonment or something. We get a little, we get a little bit of backstory in this. He was, he was an informer, like he oh, was, okay, not willingly, like it was, it was tortured out of him. But this inspector character Fumero, who you mentioned before, sort of this like evil, sneering, sadistic like guy with no redeeming characteristics. So you you can just hate him, and it's fine. <laughs> Good, great, love it. Um, he is he tortured uh, for me until he gave up all his you know all the people he had worked with in the in the previous regime. And Fumero, it's it's made clear multiple times he doesn't he has no particular like ideology or loyalty. He just wants to work for whoever will pay him money to kill people. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. Uh, So together, Daniel and Fermin start to try and track this Carax thing down and unravel this mystery. And in doing so, like in in talking to people who knew stuff and and eventually getting to people who knew Julian Carax in the first place, um, they sort of draw the, the wrath of Fumero who has this long-standing beef with Carax. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, and it turns out to be, so there are kind of two stories going on. There's one with like Daniel and Fermin and, and some of their buds kind of tracking down like information. And just, you can imagine it being sort of a PI type. Like you said noir earlier and, and yeah, it would not be out of place to, to be talking about like a dame with games up to here who yeah. came into my came into the shop and <laughs> yeah apparently had, had info to spill. Zafone is a big like Raymond Chandler fan. Um, and could he be any more of a Raymond Chandler fan? <laughs> no, probably not. I don't think so. Um, yeah, and so it, it's not what it doesn't sound like. It doesn't sound like Nancy Drew esque. It sounds darker than that. Like it does it is darker than that, and it gets like the back half of it gets much darker than okay. This. So I was having I was having a good amount of fun with this the the whole first half. That's kind of like a couple funny characters, and yeah, it, it's been noted in some of the Goodreads reviews that I read that this book is very male gazy, and even if you account mm. for the time, the time period that it is yeah. taking place in the uh the thing it made me think the most about was watching Quantum Leap here <laughs> in like the 2010s into the 2020s. Okay. And how Dr. Sam Beckett's friend Al is really horny and sexist. Sure. <laughs> and you could tell at the time that it would have read as endearing. Oh, and sort yes. Of, sort of uh, debonair and scallywaggy, but now it's just like i wish this guy would stop leering at everybody mm. <laughs> and talking about having sex all the time who is that <laughs> in making this me book? really uncomfortable for me and oh it's for me okay yeah, yeah just like talking about how much he loves uh tickle bitties oh my god that was definitely a character type <laughs> in the 80s specifically and like it spilled over into the 90s and then we've got a whole bunch of other weird versions of it since less successful versions i think in terms of what the media was trying to do where it's like yeah He's a bad guy, but we love him. 
Like that was just the thing at the time, which doesn't well, excuse like, it, but it, that's what a, people were up to. There's a trope in fiction where you can kind of, if a person has a code, yeah, you respect them you for can, the and code. Usually, it's used in the context of like murderers and stuff. <laughs> but sure. If, if if somebody is bad or does things that with no context would just be read as bad or illegal, mm-hmm. but they have a code, you can sort of get into their heads and and understand why they do what they do, and that makes it sure, okay ish. Whether or not for it is. is mostly fun. I moral of the story for me is mostly fun, but you do have to sort of be up for hearing him talk about like boobs and stuff a lot. Great. Okay. Cool. Um, but what? So then it transitioned. There's a second story that you didn't love as much, or the, yeah. So okay. well, so they're they're unraveling this mystery, and it turns out to be this sort of. It's a group of like five, I think five friends. Um, many of whom are, are dead, but they do track down, um, uh, father Fernando Ramos is like the first person in this, this group, I think who they find who starts to have like firsthand information about any of the stuff that they're talking about, or at least he's the first that they know has firsthand information. Like they're, they're getting hearsay from like the person who, like like the landlady who owned the shop that Carax's uh, dad like sold hats out. Yeah, of I and, love like, it. All, okay, all these great. Other people yes. like and, and so that part like that noiry tracking down the mystery type like the TV show Bones sort of sure. vibe, <laughs> which is the only crime procedural that anybody needs to know about. That part was fun, but then you start getting into this old like schoolboy thing where it's about Carex and Fumero and, and Ramos and uh, Jorge Aldea and, um, and somebody else, I think who, yeah, they're uh, Mikel Moliniere. Yep. Who all went to school together. Um, and they were all best pals, but then it all fall, fell apart and they all became like bitter enemies and most of them became bitter enemies for various reasons. Um, I'll explain like the core of this, of this interaction. So Julian, he is a poor kid. He works at his dad's hat shop. His dad is mostly portrayed as a big jerk because he beats his wife all the time. Um, and he suspects that. Julian is not actually his son, which is true, which we will talk about in a little bit. There's like the surface level, like what Daniel finds out. And then there's the section of that manuscript that he reads. It's like, here's how it all really Here's the down. real here's story. all sure. the secrets revealed. Um, but this, this big wig, uh, this Aldea, Aldea guy who was a big, you know, he, he had a lot of money. He had a lot of power under the old regime, but it is all melted away since the civil war. Um, he comes into the hat shop one day and, you know, Julian is so like plucky and he's got so much spunk and this guy is so used to people kind of kissing his butt all the time that he takes him under, he takes Julian under his wing and sends him to rich boy school because he sees potential in him that is not being, uh, served well by the, you know, working at a hat shop. Um, and it is here that Julian mostly makes friends with other people who 
come from more modest means. Like I think uh, Ramos is the son of like the cook at the school. Um, but it, yeah, it, it's mostly sort of down and out. I don't want to say de- delinquent types cause they're not, but they are lower class people who through twist of like a twist of fate or luck or whatever you want to call it are at this upper-class school and every all the upper-class boys who are there know it and so exclude them from everything and so they're kind of de facto like just this de facto friend group okay yeah because of their status that, that is a trope i that I, I don't mean trope pejoratively but that is a, a circumstance that i'm familiar with and like it reminds me a little bit of some of the character di- dynamics in dead poet society just like whether or not people belong at this place can actually quote-unquote belong or feel they do can become mm-hmm. a, a binding mechanism um, which could be very fraught if they yeah. don't treat each other well. So this Aldea family is the sort of the crux of, of the whole thing. Julian falls in love with the daughter of this of this benefactor who he's found. Her name is Penelope. And they are like the uh, the Aldea patriarch wants Julian to like want this quote unquote, better life, like this upper class life. Mm. So he's sort of grooming him for it a little bit. And Julian has no interest in any of it except to hang out with Penelope. <laughs> okay. And so that's what they're doing. Um, but, f- and Fumero, who is the kind of kid who like kills animals in the woods and then like cuts them up and buries them or whatever. Man. Like pretty, pretty sociopathic, like textbook sort of stuff. Uh, he also loves Penelope from afar, but she only has eyes for Julian. Um, so Julian and Penelope are carrying on in secret. Um, they are having sex one day when uh, Penelope's mom walks in on them. When um, the patriarch comes home, she tells him, and he goes bonkers and like locks Penelope in uh in a room in the house and expels uh julian from school and and like works with julian's dad to enlist him in the army and just like get him out of the picture permanently um so what ends up happening is miguel or miguel michael 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 um works with Julian and Penelope like he's trying to help them run away together but because this thing has happened like the, the, their plan to run away together was you know that that was the plan because okay. they couldn't okay. like be together publicly because of like their differences in station or, or whatever Mikel was trying to help them run away but they got caught and so Penelope couldn't make it so Julian runs away by himself with Mikel telling him that Penelope is going to follow after even though he knows this probably isn't going to happen. Very Romeo and Juliet-y a little bit. Like this is not the the, the class thing is very specific to these characters, but like oh, I'm going to help you but then it goes wrong and then we are in different spots. Okay, sure, sure, sure. Uh, so the, the like the tragic part of this is remember how we weren't 100% sure who Julian's father was and this is just going to spoil everything but it's not really it's it's one of the reasons you read the book but it's not the reason it's not the reason I don't think Julian's dad actually was this Aldea guy ah it's not a class thing it's a brother sister it's an incest thing hey hey Lannisters Uh, (laughs) 
So the this the Aldea guy who I'm sorry I don't remember his name except for his last name, but we're just gonna roll. Is with this it. Don Ricardo? Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, he he does not see potential in his son Jorge because Jorge is a child of privilege and. As Interesting. you can see in our, own, like just to, to pick an example, in some spaces of our own government or in any place where nepotism sort of oh is more important than qualifications. I don't know <laughs> what grown boy with a weasel voice you might be talking about. Uh, Jorge is not seen by Ricardo as the uh, as a like worthy like a serious yeah. way to yeah to to carry on the the line and the, and the business and everything and so he is sort of he sees in Julian who is spunky and spirited the, this potential to have an heir who he can be proud of himself. Um, so he was going to make him kind of like an unofficial heir. Yeah, but then he mm. boned his sister. No, boy. <laughs> um, so Julian runs away to France by himself. Uh, many years pass. Like Jorge is very bitter about this and also is bitter toward Mikel for his role and sort of uh, covering this up. I think. Uh, Father Fernando is sort of the Ringo of the group. I think he's the only one that nobody, he's the only one who who nobody is mad at, I think. It, but is that also, you said he was like the first one that they tracked down. Yeah, That's because he's great, still alive yes, and just always like. always happens. He's just still alive and living his life in public. Yes. There's, because he's not been caught up in the drama the, of all this other yes, stuff. Yes, the Ringo directly. of the group is always available for questioning because he didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> yeah. He's just there waiting for anyone God, to talk that. to him. I, I love that one album of Ringo's from the seven, like the most famous one that has, I think, photograph and some other stuff on it, where all of the Beatles contribute to separate tracks, <laughs> but none, no, no three of them appear together on on any one song poor Ringo they were well, not poor Ringo all of his friends wanted to help him that's but they a, just hated each other that's fair that's fair um boy where was I before well, I made that really awesome Ringo comparison? okay so uh everybody's mad at each other except Father Fernando Juliana's runaway to France by himself when does yeah, he so, become okay. an author when does that happen he's been he's been sort of writing this whole time but he he is writing in France and um, Mikel is sort of helping because because Mikel comes from a family who's like his dad made all of his money in weapons. And oh, Mikel is great. like, I'm going to spend all of this money on the stuff I know my dead dad would hate the most, <laughs> <laughs> which is an energy I can really respect. Yeah, that's true. I like uh, it. So Mikel is sort of helping finance Julian's literary career, even though, you know, nothing is it's it's not really going anywhere, even though he does seem to be talented. Um, even if he's a little like Tim Burton-y about the sort of stuff he chooses to write That's about. That's an analogy, spooky. sure. He's just kind of spooky. <laughs> you am in all kinds of reference points to help people understand well, what we're and talking I, about. And I do believe that uh, Mr. Zafon would respect our our eclectic reference points. He himself sort of being... Yes, a <laughs> media omnivore. Yes, of course. Um, okay, they're right, in France. So yeah. Fumero, Fumero is mad at Julian because he thought that Penelope should have been with him, and also he's a sociopath. Yeah, Mikel and Julian are fine. Like Mikel is helping Julian, but Mikel's other siblings 
don't like him because of how he's trying to spend all their dad's money. Reasonable. And so he is he's sort of down on his luck and, and he's like kicked out of his house and he he's just like not doing very well while he's continuing to try and, and support Julian and, and, and keep up what ends up being a big lie. Just talk about in a second. And then Jorge is just sort of like his dad has sort of taken an interest in him, but the family's fortunes are crumbling. And so they leave to go to like Argentina, I think, but things go bad there too. And he, you know, over the course of a decade or so believes falsely, I think, but that Julian was sort of the, where everything started to go bad for it, like him and his family. And so he's got, he's got it out for Julian as well. Okay. Um, the thing about Julian and Penelope, like, so Penelope, if you'll remember, has been locked in her bedroom. She's pregnant and it's Julian's. That's another thing in this book that's a little magical realism me is like, they had sex once, can have, definitely people pregnant. Can have, people have sex once and then a doctor comes over like three days later and is like, hey, yeah, she's probably pregnant. And <laughs> I got, <laughs> that has ever happened. I, it is. It has, you know. No, it has ever happened. But I've gotten somebody pregnant recently enough to know that <laughs> it does take some time to like be sure what is happening. Sure. Yes. OK. And mm-hmm. also just to like to, to one and done. You know, just to no scope it <laughs> is difficult. Well, I mean, you've said multiple times that Julian is a very capable young man. <laughs> That's true. He's very talented. <laughs> but uh, yeah, she died in childbirth. Oh, oh dear. Oh. So Julian's been living in France, uh, propped up by Mikel, who is promising that, you know, who has not told him that Penelope is dead for years and years and years. No way. Really? Yeah. Oh, Mikel so doesn't know. Mikel. Yeah, Mikel means well, I think. Um, That's what they always say about him because of the rhyme. Yeah, Mikel means well. Uh, Julie, Julian comes back to Barcelona uh, because his, you know, his life's not the best. And he, okay, I'm I'm getting the order of events wrong. So what happens is. Fumero starts to kind of try and play them all off against each other. Like he takes Jorge's already sort of dim view of Julian and inflames it and sends him off to Paris, telling him where Julian is with a gun that is faulty and is going to blow up in his face. So it does that. Oh, but this is an inciting event that leads Julian to come back to Barcelona. He and Mikel meet up. The police are on to them. Like Fumero is running the running the police at this time, and this is still pre Daniel at this point. Is this? We're still yeah. This is all wow. I mean, Daniel might be alive, but he's like not part of the story. Yeah, yeah. It's pre his story. Okay. Yeah, it's pre his story. Um. So the, Fumero is running the police because of of his ability to pick a winning horse because he doesn't care who he's who he's working yep, for. Yep, yep. So he's becoming like this increasingly decorated police officer. He um his sort of flunkies corner Mikel and Julian in a, in a cafe and Mikel who who has like TB and is, you know, has been wasting away for for a while now like takes Julian's papers and his like identifying documents and gets in a shootout with the police and dies. And so the official, like the official version of the story is that 
Julian Carax is dead mm-hmm. because Mikkel died with his with his papers. But Fumero knows that Carax isn't dead because he goes to ID the corpse and he knows that it's Mikkel. Um, but he he lets it go down on the books as Julian being dead because that means he can just like take his time and it's not a like you don't have to be super secretive when you try to kill somebody who doesn't exist. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. This feels um, very kind of Les Miserables, like Javert, Jean Valjean, I will track you down until the ends of the earth kind of thing. Um, it doesn't sound like Fumero has uh, Fumero has any of the like attempts at redemption that Javert oh, no. has. <laughs> oh, certainly yeah. not. No way. Never know. No way. No. 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 So is that kind of where those two, the the lockstep that they're in by the time we get to the Daniel tracking down the Julian Carrick stuff? Well, so this, the, all the stuff that we're learning, like all, all of the, like here's how it actually is, is happening through... Um, so Nuria Monfort, who was a lover of both Julian's and Mikel's. Oh, okay. Is, uh, he, she is somebody who Daniel tracked down and talked to, but she like lied to him because she didn't want to, I don't, it's not that she was trying to protect him, but she didn't think that he had found all the stuff that he needed to find yet. Cool. So he was, he was, she was, she was trying to, <laughs> she was trying to deter him from going further down the road oh. or, trying to keep stuff from him until he knew enough yeah, to sure. know everything. And so she writes him this like 10 chapter missive. And the only reason I give this a pass is because Nuria is in publishing. So I guess if she were to write somebody a note it would to be delivered after her death, it would come in book form. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Um, it's so what it sounds like you, you in, I don't know. Your retelling of it does not sound like a story you didn't enjoy, but maybe you just didn't love how it was. I enjoyed it, but listen, it's taking me a long time to explain it because it is so over-explained oh, in this okay. passage. Sure. It's just every single, I every thread that you come at in this section of the book you've seen before and you have suspicions about it, but then it's so thoroughly picked apart in this section that I'm just like, okay, like I, I know that you designed this sort of scenario around all these personalities and that they all bounce <laughs> off each other in this these specific ways but it does it's possible that i don't need to know every single thing that ever passed between all of them okay it's possible fair enough um i'm, I'm struck by a, a quote he said in one interview where he was like i like complicated things yeah <laughs> like he well, finds them pleasing job, aesthetically bud. And he doesn't think he's good at simple things, which maybe is the case. So it is it is believed at this point that this, you know, this fire smelling guy who's going around and burning all of Julian's books. Daniel thinks that he's Jorge Aldaya because he blames Julian for like the downfall of his family. And he's trying to erase this guy from existence because he's believed to be dead. And if you, you know, if you kill somebody's memory if you kill their works then you effectively wipe them out yeah yeah yeah, yeah. even more so than than actual death which is another way that this book is obsessed with books um but what actually happens is julian finds out that penelope is dead and that she died with their like son Mm. and he sort of has a a break 
where he like, you know, everything that had been keeping him going for all these many, many years sort of falls away. And so he becomes obsessed with erasing this lie of a person that he now thinks, you know, who Leon Carax was. Sure. Okay. Uh, so he goes to burn down like a big warehouse with a bunch of, you know, where all of his books would have been. And he gets burned really badly, but doesn't die. Oh, is he the smoky smelling dude? He, he's the smoke devil. Oh, but in running into Daniel and encountering somebody who's his Daniel's circumstances don't exactly mirror Julian's, but it's clearly like intentionally on the author's part, mirroring them just enough that we are supposed to be thinking about it yeah, in that context. Yeah. Well, and that Daniel sees, would see himself in the novel also as he becomes yeah, enamored like, with it. Daniel, Daniel sees himself in the novel and Julian sees himself in Daniel and, and starts to think, you know, that this is a maybe, maybe watching over this kid or like trying to, mentor this kid like from a distance in some way is a way of reclaiming this youth that I've lost and this like lie that I've lived. Huh. And I think that's all I really want to get yeah, into yeah, the plot yeah. because I'm really tired and we're running long. No, we're doing <laughs> but that's fine. the that that gets to the like complicated knot of relationships. And it, you know, it, it all it all comes to to a head in a very climactic way. Um there are some characters I have not talked about. Um B uh, is the love interest of Daniel. You know, after Claire is out of the picture, okay. she's the sister of his best friend um, who, she, who he initially, like he and his best friend meet, Tomas is, is the guy's name. They meet because he makes some crack about his sister and Tomas beats him <laughs> up and then they become <laughs> friends out of that. But Daniel and B like meet each other as they're grown up and it's like a this it's it's another tropey thing where you know some some girl from your childhood you meet her again and oh, oh and it's different vava voom yes as Fermin would say vava voom yeah <laughs> auga auga and his eyes pop out of his head <laughs> like a cartoon wolf's uh and they yeah they 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 have a whole thing and it, it and there are parallels drawn between Daniel and B and Julian and I think Penelope. their marriage factors um, into one at least one of the sequels um, yeah, as well. Yeah. That kind of spoils that there is a happy ending, which which pulled me back around on the book after a very intense, sure, like <laughs> bummer of a of a bridge, like before you get to the last chorus that makes you feel good about the song again. Yeah, ooh, I, that's a good metaphor. That's good. Thanks, um, thanks, man. Yeah, good thanks, work, bud. Um, I'm done. Yeah. So <laughs> what else do you want to talk? So about? I think we we can talk a little bit about. Um, I don't know that either of us are quite equipped to talk about it as a backdrop and and it, any sort of commentary on the Spanish Civil War, but there was at least one really good Irish Times article I read by Xavier. My favorite Al- place. Favorite place to go for info about Barcelona. Well, oh, excuse me. Xavier Aldana Reyes <laughs> wrote a great article for the Irish Times in 2018 called Forgotten Books, 17 Years in the Shadow of the Wind. I've drawn on it a lot in terms of just my revisiting of this book's context. 
Um, but Xavier says, whether deliberately or otherwise, many critics of the Cemetery Forgotten Book series have distanced themselves from the novel's commentaries on the Civil War and its legacy. Instead, reviewers have torturously returned to ossified debates on style or the literary merits of the bestseller. And honestly, like, I read that, I was like, dang, son, because most of the Goodreads reviews I read are about the style of the book and about, yeah. like, is the the prose is very florid and very... Um, Maybe you might you could say florid or you could say overwrought, like depending pick your point. Like, do you like it or you don't? Um, it's something where like we we've run into this with with Dante a bit. Yeah, as we've yeah, read yeah, yeah. through um the Divine Comedy, but I think like this this very adjective heavy florid style would sound more poetic and musical i think in in the original spanish where where so many more words like end with the same yeah 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 and so you can get sort of an alliteration thing going or or or, an assonance thing yeah 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 like you you can construct some words that flow really smoothly in a way that doesn't necessarily translate into english not to say that um that Lucia Graves did a bad job. I think she she did a good job. It's just it this is the way in which it reminded me of other books I had read that had been translated from Spanish into English. Sure. It's just there is an amount of floridness that is copied over yes. that I feel like would work better in the source language than it always does in, you know, in English. And most of the reviews that I've read, even the positive ones from critics, like they mention that as a hallmark of the writing and maybe don't even pass judgment on it, but just they say it basically to say this isn't just a translator's choice. This is very clearly, um, you know, Zafon is he is fluent in English. He could write these in English if he wanted to and he could do his own translation. But uh, it's clear that his intention is preserved in the translation. I found this Goodreads review from Daniel about the language useful. Not any specific Daniel. It's just Daniel from Goodreads. It's just another, another Daniel, <laughs> um, not like fiction Daniel. Yeah. Oh, whoa, that'd be so meta, given the book. Um, Daniel says, <laughs> The best thing about the book, in my opinion, is Zafone's skill in artistic writing. It reminds me of why I love to read in the first place. Lots of reviews talk about that. And it makes me wish I could write as beautiful as this. The book contains lots of memorable quotes as well. Definitely a good thing as far as I'm concerned. So after about 50 pages in, I was ready to love this book as I seldom loved another book before. But as the story progressed, that resolution started to diminish slowly but surely. Ironically, one of the more obvious flaws is the is the phone's overuse of stylistic writing. It seems like everyone acts or talks in a very elaborate manner, even in the simplest of situations, and this can become tiresome after a while. And he he's basically getting at a thing that uh, like really negative user reviews on Goodreads or other services are like, I can't take this style of writing. It's too much. And the other side well, is like, oh man, I love this. It reminds me of why I love language, which I think is the phone's sure. point. Well, and, the, and, the, and it butts up against another kind of related complaint I've seen. And, and one that I've had of a lot of books that take place from multiple perspectives is you do get most of this from Daniel and then a big chunk of it from somebody whose context is completely 100% totally different. Like sure. It, she is two or three times his age. She has lived through different stuff. She is a woman instead of a man, but the voice is, too si- is the same. Okay. Fair because enough. it's the author's voice. Yeah, 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 yeah. And not to say that it took me out of it necessarily. But it didn't... What, what, what takes me out of it uh, out of it more is... When okay, so she so Daniel is reading this manuscript from Nuria that pr- purports to be 
a recounting of events, but Nuria seems more omniscient than she really should be. Like she has oh, yeah. detailed notes about how like two characters physically interacted <laughs> in a scene where she was not there. Sure. <laughs> and so that pulls me out of it more than the voice thing does. But I do think it's a, it's a quibble, but quibble, but it's a valid quibble. I think. Sure. Um, but I think what what probably worked for you, and this is a quote from the Irish Times article I cited, um, if nothing else, this suggests why the novel did well abroad. In its smart rehashing of foreign formulas, it became eminently intelligible to audiences who might not be familiar with the political context or the character's sometimes very Spanish humor, which gets at like it being sort of a Dickens picture of a city, it being kind of a Borges, not quite magical realism, but sort of like Spanish spooky world and the noir thing and the (laughs) gothic sensibilities like the fact that everybody falls in love instantly and there's kind of these like phantom of the opera-esque mystery men running around doing stuff um that all feels like he is pulling together a bunch of different influences that are not inherently from barcelona so if you're like oh i would like to read this interesting book like you don't have to know the city you don't have to know the history to get something out of it you just need to like stories um, which it's very clear that Mr. Zafone loves stories. <laughs> uh, and that's what I, rem- that's what I remember about this book. I don't, I honestly couldn't have told you anything about the backstory, except I knew that Carrick's was still out there somehow. You kept sounding surprised when I told you twists. I, <laughs> some of them were for the audience's effect and some of them were for, mm, oh yeah, sure. that's how he pulled that off. Like the, the, the Jorge misdirection, like the misdirection of certain character motivations is something that like I couldn't have remembered on my own, but I remember like mostly working in the story. And so to hear you tell them is, is it's a fond little walk down memory lane, I suppose. Um, a little bit of a labyrinth, maybe this book is. A labyrinth sure. of spirits. A la- well, like uh, the cemetery, forgotten books is compared to the Minotaur's labyrinth. Ah, uh, sure, that's true. So, and yeah, and that's like the go. the whole thing about this being a book about books and people who love books. Like that is at the top of everyone's list when they're like, "This is my favorite novel," or "This is I love this book because I love reading." Like that's why Holly. I don't. I don't mean this is a pejorative, but there's a lot of Oscar-winning movies about making movies, and I think there's like just something there in fans of the medium loving a thing about the medium. That's not, that's just a truism. I think Mm -hmm. Um, those are all my takes as someone who didn't read the book for this week's show. Now that, and that's a really valuable perspective. You got to have both (laughs) sides, people who've read the book and people who haven't read the book. Hey, they're equal. That's an equal podcast. Yeah, well, that we and make. modern discourse has told us that the most reasonable viewpoint is the one in the exact center of. That's true. Mm-hmm. Mine and yours. That's exactly true. Um, and that's the show. Thanks for telling me about this book, Andrew. You're welcome. Uh, if any of our listeners who love this book think we missed something or think that Andrew is entirely correct in his opinions, um, you should email us at overduepod at gmail.com. Hit us up at Facebook or Twitter at overduepod as well. Thanks to Leanne, Katie, Lizzie, Heather, Josh, Amanda, Mario, Jess, Maya, Riley, Marcy, and many more for reaching out on social media this past week. We did post our uh, April schedule, which includes Hunger Games, Smoke Jumpers, uh, Death in the Family, and Encyclopedia Brown. That's the last one. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? 
they should go to overduepodcast.com, which is our internet website. Up there, we have links to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, our RSS feed. We're also available on Stitcher, Spotify, and pretty much anywhere else you can find podcasts. Uh, we have a new listener page on overduepodcast.com, which tells you episodes that we like that you can recommend to people who are trying to get into the show, or you can listen to yourself if you're a new listener and you like this one. Uh, and our Patreon page, patreon.com slash overdue pod. Uh, we completely understand that people's financial situations may have changed a lot in the last like two weeks to a month. And so if you cannot give, we completely understand if you do give and you need to scale back, we also understand, but anybody who's helping to support us, uh, monetarily in this sort of up in the air time is really appreciated right now. Yep. Craig, what are you doing? What are we doing next? We are talking about Catching Fire, the second book in the Hunger Games series. Tune in to find out if they're still hungry. <laughs> yep, that's what the book's about. It's All not right, not. <laughs> they're very hungry people. Mm-hmm. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening to our podcast for another week. Until we see you next time, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.